Good morning, family. My name is David. I'm the site pastor for our location in Sterling, Virginia. About 15 minutes from here, we consider ourselves to be the land flowing with parking and seating. And you are welcome to come up and visit us any Sunday to partake in that with us. I've titled today's message, Get Turnt. That's turnt, T-U-R-N-T. You're like, what in the world does turnt mean? If you know, you're in trouble. If you don't know, it's, it's a Greek word. That means to turn up. And if you don't know what turn up means, it's because you're a Christian. The rest of us haven't always been a Christian. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to hijack the word turn, and we're going to define it with our own uh, meaning to fit our purposes. To be turned for Jesus is our goal. And that would mean to make him your great reward, your great treasure. To be turned for Jesus is to find your delight in him, to sell everything and to go after him, to consider him to be your greatest reward. To be turned for Jesus is to make him your life in whom you live, in whom you move, and in whom you have your being. That's what it is to be turned for Jesus. Because see, summer vacation is up on us, right? Last weekend was Memorial Day, and we're ready for those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer where we just fall out and relax. It's hot in here. And all you want to do is kind of take a nap, right? Fan yourself to keep yourself awake. You want to take a nap. Everything, everything about life and in our culture and in this season right now is saying you got to turn down. But what I want to do today is encourage you to turn up for Jesus. If if that sermon title is a little too informal for you, uh, you can also write, be thou turned. Or turn thyself. (laughs) But the bottom line is the same. We're trying to get excited about the purposes of God, who he is, what he's done, and what he promises to do. Our our text text today is going to come from Mark chapter 12. Now, Mark, it was uh, written by a man named Mark. It was actually John Mark is actually his full name. John Mark is a disciple of Peter who was a disciple of Jesus. And a lot of what he wrote is an accounting of what Peter experienced being Jesus' disciple. The book of Mark flies. It's like the sports center top 10. He goes, he uses the word immediately about 40 times. And it goes from account to account to account and doesn't take much care or much time to add transition sentences and to flow from one thing to the next. It's like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. The book of Mark was written to people who were being severely persecuted by Nero in Rome. And so there was severe persecution coming. And Peter's writing this to encourage them about who Jesus is and to encourage them that he is worth giving their all for. By the time we get to Mark chapter 12, some things have been happening in Jesus' life so that he's drawing a crowd and people are flocking to him. Jesus' influence is increasing. He's healed people. He's done miracles. He's, he's uh, healed a paralyzed man at this point. He's, he healed somebody on the Sabbath. And that really started bugging some of the religious elite. You don't heal somebody on a Sabbath. You don't wear shorts to church. Right? And we, we get these rules, and, and the rules are being violated. And so at the same time as he's gaining influence, and people are starting to flock to him and love him and look to him for leadership, there's this undercurrent of distrust by the elite rulers. Now, at the very best, they were skeptical of Jesus. Who is this guy 
coming and healing these people? Who is this guy speaking with such authority? He's drawing people to himself. This guy's dangerous. We need to watch him. At the very worst, they were already conspiring to kill Jesus. They were already conspiring to end his ministry and looking for opportunities to trap him in his words or to trap him in his philosophy or to trap him in his ministry so that they could discredit and disqualify everything that he had done and say, see, he's not the real deal. You know, there's some people watching you, waiting for you to mess up so they can say, oh, they're not the real deal. But you don't need to be concerned with that because we're going to talk about our performance today. That brings us to Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 32. And one of the scribes came, to her, uh, came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and all, all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment Uh, There is no other great commandment greater than these. Father, help us as we study today. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage opens with the question, which commandment is the greatest of all? Don't we all kind of wonder that in our lives? Just tell me what to do so I can do it. But also seated in that question is, tell me what's not important so I don't have to waste my time doing that. That's how I was in college. I went to the first day of class and I'm sitting here and I'm listening. I'm like, so... Um, is attendance being kept? <laughs> right? Are you keeping track of who's here and who's not here? Uh, do you take your tests from the book or from the lecture? Because I could save 300 bucks if I don't have to buy the book. You with me? Right? We're always looking for a way so that we can figure out what's more important so we can just focus on the important thing and let the other things go. And we do this with Christianity as well. What's the most important thing at Christ Covenant Church? That I wear a bow tie? No. What's the most important thing at Grace Covenant Church so I can look right and I can be right and I can be accepted and everybody will accept me the way that I am? What is the most important thing because I'd like to let the other things go? What if I just smoke a little bit of weed? Right? We talk about that in Sterling a little bit. That was like, wrong group, right? (laughs) Nah? Y'all don't sin, right? I mean, good if you're not smoking weed, but, but for many, for many, many, many people, we're trying to figure out, well, how can I perform to be most accepted by the people instead of be most pleasing to God? Underneath this question was not, Jesus, tell me how I can be saved and be in relationship with you. It was, Jesus, tell me what I got to focus on so I cannot burden myself with all of these other things. Unfazed by his question, Jesus responds, all of them. Now, he provided two commandments. But what he did is that the ten, the ten commandments boil down to these two. The first four are concerned with our relationship with God. There is no God before him, have no idols and so on. The last six are concerned about our relationships with one another. And so what he did in answering this way, he's like, I see your question. I see that you're trying to trap me. I see that you're looking for compromise. And there is no important that's less important than the other command. There is no commandment that's less important than the other commandments. Not a letter of this law can drop off. Every single one of these words is important and significant. And he delivered it to them in a more potent and a more concentrated form. He said, love God 
Well, before I do this, how many of you have thought that when, you know, the love God, love people was easier? We're like, oh yeah, the Jewish people had all these commandments. We just have to love God and love each other. That's easy, right? Jesus is awesome. He like gave us less things to do. He made it easier. He like bust the curve. And so like we all get like, he, it's cool. We're good. Jesus has less expectations of us, but that's not at all what was happening. Let's look at this. He says, you need to love God. He opens up by quoting the word. We need to know the word. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, 4 and 5. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Every single day, a devout Jew would wake up and make that statement. And they would make it at the end of their day. Twice a day, they would say this as a means to remind themselves about the God that they serve in the midst of all these other gods. In the midst of a culture that had worshipped many, many other gods. It was a polytheistic culture, many gods, and they had one God. And there was a statement they made every single day to distinguish themselves from the rest of the world and how they worshipped. Is there anything that you do every day to distinguish your worship from the worship of those around you? Now, we're not worshiping the God of the sun and the God of the fields and the God of the birds. Our culture is intellectually beyond that. But we worship the God of nice houses, the God of nice cars, the God of, 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 of promotion. We worship the God of government. We worship all sorts of other gods because we're so much more advanced than them. I love how the scriptures are so honest with us that they paint such a clear picture as to communicate to us that even though a lot of technology has changed, the human condition hasn't changed one bit. So he says, you need to love God. And he says, you need to love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind and all of your strength. In that statement, it moves from that which is least voluntary to that which is most voluntary. Your heart, which is so difficult to contain and so difficult to direct, deals with your motives and your attitudes. It deals with who's on the throne of your heart and who is ruling in this moment. Are you ruling your heart and your passions and your desires? Or is God ruling your heart, your passion, and your desires? Whose plan are you serving? Whose plan are you more excited about? That's the condition of your heart. And then it works itself out. Your heart works itself out in your soul, which is your emotions. It's your aversions and your affections. Do you like the things of God? Do you hate the things of God? Do you hate, right? Are you with me? It's like our soul is, is, is uh, seeking after the things of God or it's seeking after the things that I desire. Do you say, hey God, I'm gonna go see a movie. You're gonna have to hang here because you won't like it. I'll be back in three hours. Or are we saying, God, my affections are for the things that you're affectionate about, so I'm not going to go to this movie because you wouldn't be able to go with me. To love God with all of your soul causes you to be a little bit weird. Not weird, weird. Not like catching the spirit at Walmart or making your own clothes or, you know, like something like that. It makes you weird because there are going to be movies that you can't go to. There's going to be language that you can't do, say. There's going to be music you can't enjoy because the spirit in you is grieved by the activity that's around you. Not for the purposes of accusing anybody else, but for the purpose of walking closely with the spirit of God and walking in his life and walking in his power and bringing glory and honor to him. To love God with all your soul isn't just the things that you can't do anymore. It's also taking great delight in who he is. 
And that's the trick. I think a lot of us are like, well, I'm a Christian now. I can't do these, these things anymore that are going to kill me anyway. But no, no, no. The trick is saying, no, no, Jesus, you're amazing. Jesus, you're my reward. And if you're not quite sure why he's amazing or why he should be your reward, just hang on just a second. He also says to love people. He said, you should love your neighbor as yourself. If you were here today as a result of evolution, if just by chance you won out because you're the fittest of the fittest, congratulations. If that's why you're here today, you have absolutely no obligation to love the person down the road from you. You have no obligation to even love yourself. Now, let me say that you're not off the hook if you hate yourself a little bit, right? You're like, well, I'm a little depressed, so... um, Forget them. I, I love them like I love myself. I hate them like I hate myself. You're not, you're not off the hook if you don't like yourself, right? We, we're, we're called to love. And this is why it's important. And this is why Jesus puts it second. He's like, if you really love me, you're going to love the ones that look like me. And Genesis is very, very clear that when God created the world, he spoke this into existence. He spoke that. He spoke that. He spoke that. And then about man, he said, let us make man in our image. And then he formed man intentionally and deliberately in his image from the dust. He took such great care to make you in the image of God. And so to spit on the image of God around you is to profane his name. One is an overflow of the other and one reflects the full reality of the other. But what a sobering thought, huh? We're going to stand before Jesus, and when he asks you, it's not just going to be like, did you go to church? Did you love? I mean, it's not even, did you love Jesus, and did you enter into the salvation of my son, but did you love, enough, uh, uh, love others enough to invite them into it as well? Amen. It's not just, did you get that promotion with integrity, but did you help others to get that promotion as well? Did you enjoy the benefits of a Christ-centered marriage that has joy and hope and peace in it? But did you also train others and invite others into it? Did you fight and contend to walk according to the calling that you've been called with, to fight for the purposes of God in your life? But also, did you fight for others? What a weighty statement. I need your help with this next point. In the seat back in front of you, there's a, there's a little pad of paper, the Grace Covenant notes, and a pen. If you could go ahead and take that out. At the top of the piece of paper, I want you to write the number 10. And then moving down the paper, write 9, 8, 7, 6, all the way to 1. I can do it. I can count that low. I just didn't want to show off. <laughs> Once you get all, all digits down, say, I'm there. Great. 10 is going to represent perfect fulfillment of these commandments. That means you have never failed or stumbled at loving God with all of your heart my soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor. One is you haven't even tried to love your neighbor or love God in that way. Go ahead and put an X next to how well you perform. I know it got awkward. You're like, seriously? Can Pastor Brett come back, please? <laughs> I know why they sent him to Sterling. He's cranky. You got it? Say, I got it. Great. Do you have a gap between where you are and the expectation of God? That is the functional definition of sin. That gap between what God expects and your ability to perform what he expects is sin. You could just write sin in that big 
whole. Romans teaches us that the wages of sin is death. But I'll tell you what, even if you were able to work really, really hard and get all the way up to like a 9.999999, there's still a gap. That gap is still sin. That gap is still death. So it's not a matter of how well you do on the outside or what your performance is. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Can we agree on that today? Gosh, that's you. Somebody was a little excited. (laughs) That's me. Now the gap is a symptom. It's not the cause. The gap is a symptom. It's a reflection of who's sitting on the throne of your heart. That we take much more pleasure in our desires than in the desires of God. We take much more, uh, we place much more importance on what we want to do and how we want to be and what we want to prioritize over the priorities of God. We're more passionate about our plan for our lives than God's plan for our lives. We want what we think is best, not what he thinks is best. And that's reflected in every decision that caused you to put your mark lower than 10. Now, I don't say this to condemn you. That's, that's the reality. That's where we all are or all have been. Now, go ahead and rip off that piece of paper and put the pen and the, the stuff in the seat back in front so the next service can do this. And so you're not stealing and then have to move down even further. <laughs> Christian thieves. Just kidding. Take them. Leave them at your dentist or something. If you're not feeling turnt yet, that's okay. Because the good news isn't how well you perform or how well I perform. That's not the gospel. That's not what we were shouting about. That's not the source of that Kirk Franklin song that Pastor Robert was talking about. Why do we put our hands up in the air? We don't put our hands up in the air because we're awful. I'm awful. You're not awful. I'm awful. Right? And you can say it to yourself. Say, I'm awful. Yeah, I didn't think you'd do it. This gap, this sin problem is the greatest existential challenge that has challenged everybody who has and ever will live. You can ignore this problem. You can minimize the problem. But it is written on our hearts, and so we do know that that problem is there, so we work really hard to suppress the problem. The thing is, there aren't enough trees that you can plant or bottles to recycle to cover the sin gap because the gap continues to remain. We fill it with any measure of earthly things and earthly successes. We try and cover it with promotion and money and a nice house and a nice car. We Maybe we wear a bow tie on Sunday morning so nobody will question where we are. I'm not accusing Pastor Brett, but I'm saying that's, where, where that's how we start to act when, we're, when we are dealing with that gap in a way that's insufficient. See, Adam and Eve had a gap. When they first ate the apple, you know what they did? They went and they grabbed some leaves off the tree because they realized they were naked. They were like, oh, we're naked. And they were like, we got to cover this up. We're shamed. And they grabbed the leaves and they covered it up and any leaves wither away and they die. So any, temp- any covering that we come up with is temporary. Any house, any car, any promotion, any money, any bow tie, it all withers away in time. The only thing that could cover them permanently is when Jesus killed an animal, when God killed an animal and covered them with those skins. Blood had to be spilled to cover the gap of their sin. 
Every major re- religion deals with this gap. And the way that the religions deal with that is they say, you need to be good enough to earn your way to God. But we see on the piece of paper, on the sermon that you wrote on that piece of paper, that no matter how far good we go, there will still remain a gap. Christianity doesn't do this. Christianity doesn't say, try harder, be better, be the best. It says that everywhere that we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Check this out. Jesus, while these two commandments, we all fall short of this. We all have failed at this. We, I mean, I failed at that like during this sermon, right? You're like, oh, he's bad. Is he a pastor? What happened? Jesus loved the father with his whole heart. His entire motivation and everything that he did was to glorify the heavenly father. With his whole soul, his, his emotions and his will were surrendered to the purposes of God so that even when he was dying up on the cross and he's standing up here and his accusers and the murderers are yelling at him and taunting him, instead of feeling his own anger towards those people, he felt the father's compassion and cried out for the Father's forgiveness. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. How can you do that unless it's not your own, but the Father's? When somebody offends you, can you find the room to forgive them? Because the Father is looking down with compassion and sadness and grieving and going, no, 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 child, that's not what I want for them. That's not what I want for you. Can you extend the Father's forgiveness to them? And you can't like say, well, God forgives you, but I don't. That's not extending the father's forgiveness. He loved with his whole strength. When he died on the cross, he held back nothing of his own strength from loving the father because the father's will was that these people, that you people, that we people, that every person who has had that gap would be restored from him, delivered from death, redeemed from evil, redeemed from shame, made new in him. And it required the death of someone perfect. It required a sacrifice. And Jesus signed up for that and gave it and did it with his whole strength. And in doing so, he loved his neighbor perfectly. I've said it and I'm going to keep saying it. The gospel is not that you are perfect, but that Jesus was and is. And from his throne of grace, he looks down on you and me. He looks at that gap. Now, granted, we think we're like an eight, right? Or a three. And, and God's like, no, 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 no. You understand about this much of your gap. The gap is infinite. Jesus looks down, he sees this infinite gap and he goes, I will cover that on your behalf because I desire that you would have life. I desire that you would have hope and glory. I desire that you wouldn't just die and face condemnation, but you would know me and walk with me, that you would be my people and I would be your God and you would surrender your hearts to me. It's impossible to fulfill those two great commandments. As easy as it is to say, it's impossible to accomplish, which is why Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's saying, if you're working so hard to earn your salvation, to be good enough for me to save you, you're wasting your time. I've got another burden. I've got another thing that I have for you. It's my acceptance. It's my love. It's my mercy. It's my grace that I want to pour out on you, and that grace is without earning. There's nothing that you can do, not enough good things that you can do to earn that grace. But the Christian life is not without effort. We still 
strive to live a life of excellence that's glorifying to the Father, that upholds his name, that makes him great, that glorifies him. We still come to church. We still join small groups. We still read our Bibles every day, right? We still do these things and we still pursue him with a passion and a zeal. We still get turned up for him because of what he did, but because he's got work for you to accomplish while you're here. He didn't just save you so that you could be saved. He's not like, I see the gap. I'll make the gap go away. There you go. He's like, no, no, no. I've, I've seen that gap. I covered the gap. I bridged the gap and placed the word sin. You can write the righteousness of God down over top of it. You can write forgiven over top of it. You can write redeemed on top of it. You can write living forever on top of it. And because you are those things now and not the things that were, the new creation has good work that needs to be done. Are you, oh man, like we're having church like Tiffany and I. So what's our proper response? We need to cease striving to earn the acceptance of God and begin to receive his forgiveness, his salvation, his righteousness, his peace, his love, his joy, his hope. We need to move from believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead as a historical fact to believing that he did it for us. He did it for me, and he did it for my neighbor, and he did it for my neighbor's neighbor, and there's not a single person who will cry on the name of Jesus who he will turn down. And then we need to live out in the fullness of life that's afforded us by this gospel, by this good news. So uh, he promises in Jeremiah 32, verse 39. God says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they will be my people and I will be their God for they shall turn to me with their whole heart. And we worship him with our soul, with our emotions and we get turned up for him and we get, we get passionate about him and his things and his purposes. We start to get passionate about the things he's passionate about. We begin to feel aversion to the things he has aversion to, against. We, we get excited about the things of God instead of the things of us and we figure out, God, what is it that makes you most happy? What is it that makes you most satisfied? Because I want to find satisfaction in those same things. When you get turned for Jesus, your mind doesn't go to slop. You don't just get done. Um, you don't have to worry that like I'm going to catch the spirit of Walmart, right? I think I said that earlier. Did I say that earlier? We need to build the building. There are too many services. <laughs> Our mind doesn't get dumb. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He wants to renew your mind. He wants to make your mind sharp. He wants to birth things through you. He wants to leverage your creativity and your modality, how he's made you to create things and to make things. The mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the things of the spirit is life. But so often our things are, our mind is on the things of the flesh. I mean, I tried to pick out like 18 different outfits to preach today. I was like, it's my first time. I can't disappoint the pastor. I got to have a bow tie. But which bow tie? You know, and, and, but my mind was on the things of the flesh. And God's going, David, you're an idiot. Cut that out. Think about the things of the spirit. Think about the things that I want to do in Grace Covenant Church. Think about the things that I want to do through Grace Covenant Church. Think about the things that I want to do in the lives of every person that comes through that building to advance my kingdom and advance my purposes in their lives. You see the gap? 
the flesh versus the spirit, the things of man versus the things of God. He wants to do extraordinary things. And we love him with all of our strength. We go all in. We hold nothing back. When you go in on Jesus, it's not like I'm going to try this Jesus thing for my relationships, but I'm going to keep my side person just in case he doesn't come through. We, oh, was that too real? Was that too real? Oh, right? Like, I'm going to believe Jesus to bring me joy and to bring me hope, but I'm going to keep the alcohol locked away just in case he doesn't come through. No, 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 no. When we go in on Jesus with all of our strength, we go in, we push it all to the middle of the table and we say, Jesus, come through. Jesus, come through or I'm done. I got nothing. You see how much this changes when we're not trying to earn it? but we're living out of the acceptance of it. It changes everything. And then I'm out of time, but we love our neighbor out of the abundance of that. You can read about it in your Bible. (laughs) Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you. I thank you that you are a good God and you have a plan and a purpose for us. And that plan is life. And that purpose is to advance your kingdom anywhere that we find ourselves to be. God, you are good and you are gracious and you are merciful. You are just and righteous and kind. And I ask that now you would pierce our hearts. We would grieve for the things that you grieve for. God, you weren't satisfied with the gap caused by sin. Neither should we be.